0: I have entitled the message for today, Totally Human, Totally God, because that is what we see here in front of us in the Gospel of John. We are journeying through here, and as you know, in the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, it said a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, a town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet, says in verse 2, with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was sick. Therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, that statement right there. They did not order him to come. They did not beg him to come. They left it open-ended. And they really said to him, I think the strongest most compelling thing they could. More than, Lord, have mercy and have pity on this poor man. They said, Lord, he whom you love. And it's almost like this is a clue that John leaves laying on the side as we begin the chapter. One of those things that when you see it, you want to pick it up and keep it because you're going to need it later and it's going to serve you well later. It serves us well this day as we come to this passage. We saw the positioning for the miracle in these early verses, the preparation for the miracle. We talked all about all the different players and we talked at length about thomas and though thomas is somewhat of a genuine melancholy pessimistic type by temperament his love for christ we studied how it far outweighed his temperament and thus that his love for christ is actually astonishing the more you study it and that in some ways he's had bad press by being called doubting thomas His doubts were founded on a remarkable love. And we looked at that in detail. If you missed that message, I would encourage you to get it. We looked at the arrival already twice of Jesus to this scene. So we come today to the miracle itself and its attending circumstances. And the first thing that we see here is what I would call the invitation of Jesus. We left off last time and Jesus was talking to Martha. I find it fascinating that when we think of Mary and Martha in the Bible... Who do we give the credit to for being most spiritual? Very quickly, this is a quiz. Mary. Isn't it interesting we all think that and say that. We give Mary all the credit for being spiritual. But we saw last time that when Lazarus had died and Jesus had waited four days and knew that he was now four days dead and approached Bethany, he stopped on purpose outside of the area where Lazarus would have been buried and outside Bethany itself. He wanted to talk to Mary and Martha alone. You mathematicians add this up very quick. In fact, this is not even math, it's arithmetic. You just all shouted Mary for being the most spiritual. But at this great crisis, the greatest crisis of their life, who is the one that was sitting in the house and who was the one that when she heard Jesus, because they both heard Jesus was in the area, who was the one that ran out to meet Jesus? Martha! So suddenly, you see that whereas at one point in time, Mary seemed to be the most spiritual, at another point in time, Martha seems to be the most spiritual, and isn't that just how it is? That at one point in time, any one of us seemed to be the most spiritual, but at another point in time, another one of us is most spiritual, and that is especially true in marriages, that's why we need each other, it is especially true in friendships in the church, that's why we need each other, and it is just in fact true. And I delight in seeing Martha out on the edge on this one, because she, like Thomas, has gotten so much bad press. In fact, I would suggest to you that by the time we're done looking at Mary, maybe she should have married Thomas. (laughs) Because they were both melancholy and pessimistic, but they were at the same time devout lovers of Christ. And that equaled it all out in the end. So we come to this invitation of Jesus. It's really something that goes out to Mary where Jesus now calls Mary to Himself to reveal Himself to her in a special sense as the resurrection and the life. Now, we ended up last time when I told you that in the Old Testament that basically living again after death is taught, resurrection after death is taught, but it's not that prevalent. And it's not that extensive. So you can look to Job. If a man dies, will he live again? He throws that out in the middle of the trial. Later on, he says that I know that my redeemer lives and that I shall stand with him in that day. And in my flesh, I will see God. Quite a bit of deep insight there. That's one main pillar. Then there is David in the Psalms. You will not suffer your Holy one to see corruption and so on. And then there is Daniel with great revelation of the afterlife. And the judgment and so on but those are like the three big ones in the Old Testament so when Jesus stands here and he's talking to Martha and he says I am one of the great I am statements in the Gospel of John it's an I am God statement when he says I am the resurrection and the life this is a brand new unparalleled revelation of life after death and how it is all connected to Jesus Christ and the fact that he is God and the statement is made right before he does the ultimate miracle which will prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what he has just said cannot be denied in any way, shape or form. So I am the resurrection and the life. Thus it is new, profound clarity and revelation that nobody has ever had before. It is at the climax of his public ministry, which is effectively now over. It's a message to the disciples and it's one last shot over the bow to the Christ rejecting religious leaders in Jerusalem being only about two miles away from Bethany. So here is Jesus and Martha. Because Mary was not there, Jesus gives an invitation to Mary through Martha. And I don't often do this, but it's irresistible at this point. In doing this, this invitation to Mary is actually so clearly a pattern. A pattern for all of us in our witnessing. It's so clearly a pattern that I just can't resist going through the passage with it as a pattern for our witnessing really uppermost in our minds i don't do this often but i i'm doing it today because it's just so clearly here so this invitation of jesus goes out to mary as the resurrection to come and encounter him as the resurrection and the life it's a whole new level of her relationship with christ at that point to begin with it is given by a messenger by a messenger and that messenger is of course martha if you look at john 11:28. And when she had said these things, she had just said to him in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So after all his revelation, she just gives him the crowning acknowledgement of worship. Basically the same thing that Peter said by the revelation of God the Father. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are everything that you say you are. And so now she's come to see what she needs to see. And in verse 28, when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying the teacher has come and is, here's Mary just sitting in the house, is calling for you. Now, Mary, I told you to come with me when I went, and now he's specifically calling for you. I don't think it's such a rebuke as elation. She is so elated with what she has just received from Jesus. She can't wait to tell her sister. Though this invitation is not written and read as directly words of Jesus, she says the teacher has come and, look at verse 28, is calling for you. So Jesus had told Martha, go get your sister and tell her I want her to come back. She too must come to know me as the resurrection and the life. What I like about this is that, there are so many wonderful invitations given directly in the Bible by Jesus. I mean wonderful invitations like in Luke 11:9, where Jesus said concerning bringing your needs to God in prayer. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And this is just one of the greatest invitations in my own personal life. In recent days, this has become as if it was brand new to me all over again. And literally the Greek says, ask asking, don't stop. Knock knocking, don't stop. And seek seeking, don't stop. Because I don't want to stop answering and blessing and manifesting my provision and my power and my grace for you. So please don't stop because I don't want to stop. It's a beautiful, beautiful invitation. I think of the invitation to fellowship in Revelation 3.20 where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, though this scripture is used most prevalently, if not always, to refer to bringing someone to Christ, Jesus was in fact addressing a lukewarm church. And what he is saying to the individual members of that church is, let me back into your life, come back into fellowship with me. And so he's saying, you've shut me out of your church. I'm knocking at the door, I want to come back in. I want to bless all of you collectively and all of you individually. For he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to dine with him and he with me. And of course this is true of what happens in salvation, but it is primarily... And in the context, Jesus saying, let me back into your life. And then there is in Matthew 11:28 28, the invitation to learn from Jesus where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, I want you to pay attention to this and then bring it with you into the passage tonight because he says, learn from me... For I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. How gentle and how lowly and how human that He might be able to teach us as humans. Take that with you. Because here are these great invitations, but you see, here is one. They're all given directly, they're written and read in your Bible. But here is a wonderful invitation. It's not written and read, it's given through a messenger. And it is the invitation to come to Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Perhaps more important than any of the other invitations. So that as Martha received this message, she is then ready to give it away. So Jesus says to her, go call your sister. And she does that. She hears these words and then she goes and takes them to Mary. Now, I want to apply this invitation to you today. Because here's the invitation. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Then add that to these words. The teacher has come and is calling for you. For you. I want to aim it right at you today. And I want to ask you, do you hear His voice? Have you responded to His voice? Do you know Him as the resurrection and the life? To believe in Him in that way for the future when you die and to believe in Him as that now? Because that was His point to Martha. I want you to believe in me as God. I am the resurrection and the life right now and in the future as well. Do you believe that? High in the Alps, at the historic St. Bernard Pass, there is a hostel that is run by monks. They keep the great St. Bernard dogs there, of course, named after that place. And in the last century, in winter, when the snow would be coming down as it does in the Alps, just thick in the air so that the air would be so filled with snowflakes that you couldn't see. If a person was coming up the mountain to the hostel to stay there that is run by the monks... The snow was so thick that you couldn't see the trail. The monks used to go out and they would ring this huge bell that was outside and they would continue to ring it in shifts so that if a traveler was lost in the snow, he could be guided by the bell almost totally right up to the hostel. And if I could use that analogy, I want to say this. I'm sounding the bell as clear as I can. And I put it that way because our lives are so often misted over snowed up as it were, fogged up as it were, however you want to put it, with all of our afflictions and all of our sorrows that sometimes you just can't see the way clearly. And you get caught in this management by anxiety of your life and into that washing machine of emotion and knee-jerk reaction and catch 22 and all of the difficulties and complexities of life and your sin and the blindness of your sin and the hardness of your heart into that washing machine of your life comes the gospel and often it just gets caught in there and washes around and around and around and you're kind of looking at it like well eventually when it comes around again am i thinking i'll grab it and think about it and maybe one day i'll even separate it out and do something with it but often that nothing ever happens I want to say to you right here, today, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Do you believe it today? Is it real for you today? Is it affecting your life today? Listen, if you've been just awash in your problems and afflictions and everything else and putting Jesus off, don't realize this is the most important thing you will ever think about and the most important move you will ever make in your life so this message of the resurrection and the life is given by a messenger and it's Martha I find it tremendously strengthening to realize that it is given after a personal encounter with Jesus Martha hears he's in the area and she runs out she bolts, she's been waiting I think and when she hears he's in the area she bolts right out there and she has a personal encounter with Jesus that is at that point the most enlightening experience and the most intimate experience and meaningful that she's ever had with Jesus and has come at the time of the greatest pain she has ever known, the loss of her brother whom she loves so much. And so this message goes out through her lips after a personal encounter with Jesus. Look at John eleven twenty-eight again. When she had said these things, she went her way. And secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. In other words, here's Mary, personal encounter with Jesus, and she goes away fresh from his presence, and she's calling with the gospel message. The teacher has come and is calling for you. We're talking then about how our personal relationship affects our evangelism. I believe they are directly related. They're inseparable. Let me ask you a question. If I say to you right now, are you a Christian? Just answer that question in your mind. Are you a Christian today? Yes, I am. Okay. Then I have to ask you, then do you call others to Christ? It says she was with him, she went her way and called. And was saying the teacher has come and is calling for you. Do you do that? Let me put it to you a little more personal. Do you bear the invitation on your lips that someone brought to you or maybe that many people brought to you? It's amazing how much our lives change because somebody cared enough to witness to us. Because some cared enough to witness to us more than once. Because some cared enough to go beyond witnessing and to get on their knees and agonize for us. Because others gave us a track. But there was that effort on the part of many people, I believe it's always more than one, many people to reach us And it's amazing how much our lives change once we're reached with Jesus and we believe He's the resurrection and the life. And yet, how much do we do to pay back on that? Here are those that made the effort. Here are those that went past our belligerence. Here are those that went past our idiotic comments to go on to love us, to go on to smile, to go on to pray. Do you take out to others the invitation that was first given to you? The Master has come. And he's calling for you. Is that on your lips often? If you find yourself admitting, you know what, I'm afraid not. Then I strongly suggest to you that it is related to the time you spend with Jesus. See, I think that when we don't spend sufficient time with the Lord, then we are not stirred to tell others about him. Frankly, you don't talk about what you're not excited about. What we talk about is what is exciting us currently. People who spend time with Jesus naturally spend time talking about him. It's just natural. I love it when I'm talking to somebody about Jesus and I run out of time. And I'm just thinking I could go on and on and on and on and on on with this. I frankly go through that a lot when I'm preaching. I see you checking your watches and I think, carnal, I could go on and on. (laughs) You're thinking, i got to get out of here. This guy's putting me to sleep. You know what I'm talking about. When God is there, whether it's witnessing or fellowship, you could go on and on. That's because those are those times you're excited. And when we have spent quality time with Jesus, it's not a big teeth-gritting burden to go out and share. Rather, it spills right out of the abundance of our hearts. Isn't that true? And there's an enthusiasm there that's infectious. Chuck Swindoll once made the comment that He felt the joy of the Lord is the most winsome, magnetic, attractive thing about a born-again Christian. Would you believe that's true? I believe that's true. And that's that joy that when we go out from His presence, it's just natural. You just are looking for somebody to talk to and looking for an opening. This comes after a personal encounter with Jesus Further, it is given personally to Mary. In, in John 11:28. when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. Now, obviously, there's the dynamic of the whole funeral crowd and Jesus wants her alone. So that's one reason it's secret. But as I look at this as an example, to me, the best evangelism takes place one on one. I am not against mass evangelism, I am not against crusade evangelism, I am absolutely for evangelism. I am for evangelism, in fact, of all kinds, any kind, I'm for it, as long as it's the whole gospel and it's real. But you see, the best kind is one-on-one. You know why? Because usually what happens is across the bridge of a trusting relationship comes the gospel. And God has ordained that relationship and there you are and you've gained the person's trust and there is their life and there is their need and and here's Christ and He's the resurrection and the life. He's life here now. You want a real life? He is it. And so there you are and there's the opportunity and you're friends and you're seeking Christ and it's just natural. And there's that moment you've been praying for and there it is. And you come right across the bridge with it. And it's just God at work. And then the next thing you know, you're praying with the person. Those kind of moments and those converts that come out of that kind of evangelism, one-on-one evangelism, are usually the ones that bear fruit that's lasting. More often than any other kind. And all the research supports that, all of it. So here she goes and she goes personally to Mary and she brings the message of Jesus, the resurrection and the life. I would say one other thing here that it's just a practical thought because sometimes even you'll develop a relationship with a person or you get to know them, but you can't be with them all the time. Or due to circumstances, suddenly you can't be with them or due to their own um, worsening condition as the Word of God is plowing their heart, as they see the sinfulness of their sin, as they're trying to control it and they're getting devastated and they're getting worse and it's out of control, and suddenly they get so bad they just tell you to just shut up and quit lecturing me and don't tell me anymore about Jesus and the door is slammed effectively in that relationship. What do you do then? Well then, if you're really caring, then you drop back to your knees. And I love it the way Chuck Smith describes it. You bring out the big guns of prayer. The big guns of prayer. And there you begin to bear down. Oh, shut me out. Well, you will all get in deeper. And you get on your knees and you just begin to really intercede. I can track my own personal conversion to that. I can track the time when God began to invade my thoughts. I can track the time when I slammed the door, told them all to shut up, to get out of my life, that I didn't want Christ. I wanted a different way, and there were many other spokes that led to the hub of the wheel in my life to find God. And I can remember it, and I can track the time when they drew back and began to bear down in prayer, and it all became way more intense and much more personal. This message goes to marriage given personally. The best evangelism takes place that way. And sometimes when the door is slammed and you want to go to prayer, I read about a man, this is so wonderful. This man lived right next door to a church in St. Paul in Minnesota. He didn't believe the gospel and he didn't want to go to church and he didn't want to hear any more preaching and he refused all invitations and he just slammed the door on everybody finally. However, one week the church had a series of special meetings and there was some great music going on and he started to hear the music and he started to get kind of enticed and curious and so he finally decided he was going to go over and and just hear the music. He thought, I'll just sneak in. Nobody will see me. And I'll go in. I'll sit down in the back of the church. I'll just listen to the music. Then I'll slip out. And that's what he did. So he went in just for the music. Went in, sat down. And when the musical portion of the evening was over and the preacher began to stand up to preach, the guy went to make his move. The problem was, by that time, the church had gotten so full, he couldn't get out. There was no way out. So you know what he did? He thought to himself, I'll do the next best thing. So here he is, sitting in the middle of this crowd toward the back of the church. He said, I'll put my fingers in my ears so I don't have to hear this message. And he literally sitting there like that. So he's going along and the preacher's just gone, but he can't hear him. And and there he was with his fingers in his ears and... You know, that kind of thing really doesn't bother God all that much because God is so much in control, He can do anything He wants to get around it. So you know what God did? God sent a fly His way. And the fly began to buzz around the guy's nose. So here He is, you know, like this. So finally He's got to let one hand go out of His ear to swat at the fly. And just as He did that, the preacher shouted out, and he said, He that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And boom, the Lord's Spirit hit his heart, and the guy was hooked and had to listen to the rest of the message. It was irresistible, and God was talking straight to him. So if you run out of ways to get in, bring a jar of flies and just turn one loose now and then. But I love it, because you know what? I look at that and I realize somebody, maybe a lot of people, were praying for that man. It was also interesting to me that Jesus told her to do this. Jesus could have done any number of things, but he chose to do it this way. So that when she gets to her sister, she says, The teacher has come and he is calling for you. In other words, he commanded her, Do not go to the tomb. Leave right now and go to your sister and tell her this. She went by the command of the Lord. Do you see the obvious parallel here? Is there a command in the Bible that tells us to go out with this message? Yes, in mark sixteen fifteen he said unto them, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature in matthew twenty eight nineteen he said "Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always that 's the part I love so much because It's when I'm alone with Him, I get stirred and excited about my relationship with Him. Then I go out and I say, Lord, I want to take the invitation that was given to me. I want to see somebody's life change as mine has. Now God, go with me and He has promised, I will be with you. How often and how long? Always. I am the resurrection and I am the life right now. The source of everything we need. So, given at the command of Jesus. Then I say it was given to one who had ears to hear. You realize that there's people out there, they're waiting to come to Christ, they just don't know it. Their life is at that point where you finally were, when you came to Christ. And that if we will go out and sow the seed that we will find those people, we'll bump into them, God will lead us to them. There will be those times, those divine appointments where you're just sitting there across the table from them and you don't know why, they just begin to pour out their heart and you've got the answer and you're going, this is too clever, this is a setup, I can't resist this and the Lord says, you better not and away you go. I remember one time I was working in Long Beach, on pipeline construction and I was going back around the alley where we were digging this long ditch laying pipe and There was a a man trying to put in a light bulb on a front porch And I I saw him it looked funny as I went by and I realized that man is blind He's totally blind and he's trying he he can't get that light bulb in So I went on down the alley Prayed some quick prayer like oh lord heal his blindness and God says you want to really do something about his blindness and I said, yeah, Lord, heal him now in Jesus' name. And God spoke to my heart. You go back and put that light bulb in for him and then tell him why you came back. And what a thrill. I mean, I fought God on. I got pretty far down the alley. But I finally turned around. I was late, so I had to run back. And I said, excuse me, so let me help you. I got the light bulb in. And I really was now late for what I was supposed to do. But I was able to just say, I just have to tell you this real quick. The reason I came back, I saw you, is because I know Jesus Christ. I'm born again. I didn't know him. I was a sinner. I was lost. I was miserable. And I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but I gave him the whole gospel and said, God bless you, and I'm going to pray for you, and I was gone. But you know something? When I went away, my heart was just flaming, flaming with warmth and love that... I had obeyed the Holy Spirit and that man I knew if nobody else in his whole life ever tells him about Jesus, he heard it from me. That was just an open door from the Lord and he does those things in our life. He that has ears to hear, that's the one that was sitting in the house. Mary was sitting in the house, we're told that in verse 20. Jesus now sends her sister to call her and when she hears the teacher is coming and is calling for you, I love her response, she ran to meet him says in verse 29, as soon as she heard that, she rose and quickly came to him. She got up and took off and ran to him. This is critical because the house is filled with mourners, friends, people that care. It would have been very easy for Mary to say, well, I have this house full of people. They've come here. They're showing me care and concern. I just can't take off. You come in here and secretly tell me the master wants to see me on the side. And I believe some of us would do that. Some of us would do that. We would care more about what the people think around. But you see, Mary saw the greatest priority of all the Master's calling. And that is the greatest priority. And the picture here, I see the parallel, is that when the Gospel comes to your life, that you need to make your priority responding to it whether any of your friends come along with you or not. Because frankly, many of them won't. In rare cases, some have many that come along, but in many cases, no one comes with you. And if you will begin your Christian life like that, then you can live your whole Christian life like that. Because if you're going to please God, you'll have to. Because friends come and go in your life. They really do. But we are called to follow God. So I love the fact that she got up quickly and went out straight to Jesus. She had her priority right. And when the Master comes to call you, that's the way you have to do it. It says in verse 31, Then the Jews who were in her house and comforting her, when they saw Mary rose up quickly and went out, boom, she was gone, they followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. So here goes Mary off to a private encounter with Jesus, and they go off to the tomb, and it's Jesus orchestrating all things. Whenever He's doing one thing, He's just doing many things. He's getting them over to the tomb, because that's where they went. They assume she went there. While Mary goes to be privately... With him, So now they're going to the tomb. They're ready for the miracle. And Mary's going to him to come to know him as the resurrection of the life and be totally prepared for the miracle. She was sitting and waiting in the house. She ran to him. And then when she gets to him, she worshipped him. Look at John 11:32. Then Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. And she fell down at his feet, saying to him, what's the next word? Lord, Lord. She worshipped him. And then if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's just spontaneous, right out of her human heart. Now, Mary delayed to come to Jesus. But when the word came and it was clear, after delaying, she got up and she ran and she worshipped him. When Jesus says, come unto me, and we hear it, we need to run and fall at his feet and worship him. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones sharing that, if, as a Christian, after you're converted, he said, if you ever get an impulse... To pray and you're somewhere alone where you can respond immediately he said if you ever get a strong impulse to pray out of nowhere don't push it away he said drop straight to your knees and see what God is wanting to do because God is wanting to do something that's why the impulse cut through all of your busy thoughts and suddenly you feel it I remember he told how one morning he was preparing for church and he was just getting dressed and getting ready to go preach and he had that impulse He closed the door and he dropped to his knees. And effectively, God began to give him dictation. He had to grab a pad, a notepad, and start writing. And these outlines began to come. And they came one right after the next, one sermon after the next, until by the time he was done, he had the basic outlines for all the sermons that he eventually preached later as a series that became the book Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Which, if you have never read that book and you are given to depression and doubt and and weakness, you need to read that book. Because that book is the culmination of years and years and years and years of first medical doctor experience, then a doctor of souls preaching the Word, and wrestling with the issue of why is it some, some Christians are so much weaker than others. And all those issues are addressed in that book, but the outlines to all those sermons came like dictation all at once, just upon the heels of an urge to stop and pray. Do not deny that. Mary ran and dropped to his feet and began to worship. It's amazing, you know, Mary. Human, we've seen that. But every time, the only time we see her in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. She's at the feet of Jesus in the story in Luke where Martha's busy in the house and Mary gets all the credit for being more spiritual. She ends up at the feet of Jesus here worshiping him. And later, she is again at the feet of Jesus as she breaks an alabaster box of ointment and anoints him and the odor, the fragrance fills the whole house. Those are the only three times we see her, but she is at the feet of Jesus every time. I'll tell you, if I glean nothing else from this message, it's going to be a picture of this woman continually going back to the feet of Jesus. And so she ran to meet him and she worshiped him. She delayed, but now she ran. I'll tell you why this ministers to me so much. I read a story about a bishop by the name of John Taylor Smith, a former chaplain general of the British Army. And on one occasion he was preaching in a large cathedral. And the text was, You Must Be Born Again. And he's preaching along, and he began to think about an illustration, and and he went like this. He said, My dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. He said, For example, you may be a member of a church... Even the great church of which I am a member, the historic church of England, he said, but church membership is not new birth. Our text says, you must be born again. And then he turned to the rector of the church who was sitting in his left and he continued and he looked right at him and he said, you may be a clergyman like my friend here the rector, and not be born again. You must, Jesus said, be born again. And then he just continues on, and he goes to his right. And here is the archdeacon of the church, and he points right at him, and he looks right at him, he looks him right in the eye, and he says, you might even be an archdeacon in a church like my friend right here, the archdeacon, and still not be born again. You must be born again, Jesus said. You're not going to heaven just because you're an archdeacon. And then he said, you might even be a bishop like myself and not be born again. And he finished his message and he went on his way. But a day or two later, he received a letter from the archdeacon. And the letter read in part, My dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over 30 years. I have never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of, and I have never been able to understand it. He said, but when you pointed to me and said that a person could be an archdeacon and not be born again, I understood what the trouble was. Could you please come and talk to me? And so obviously Bishop Smith went over and talked to him and shared on farther with him. And the man gave his life to Jesus Christ and became born again on the spot. But you see, he'd been 30 years. Think of it. Longer than some of your lifetimes. 30 years. He'd been involved in that work and never been born again never had the resurrection in the life so i say to you maybe you've been delaying for a long time or maybe you're here maybe you're with your spouse maybe with your boyfriend maybe with your girlfriend maybe you just grew up in the church but the bible says today right now today is the acceptable day of salvation this is the day to be right with god no other day counts because there is no day except right now and so the invitation of Jesus. There's just one other thing I want to get to. I don't know if I've ever seen or felt what I see and feel here. And it's the weeping of Jesus. Into this cold scene of death comes Jesus Christ and he transforms it into a scene of warmth by his love. The Bible says that he was troubled in his spirit. In John eleven thirty three, it says, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, here's Mary and she's weeping. And the Jews who are now moving toward the tomb and they are weeping. He groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. I have looked long and hard at this. And I see a Jesus here, I'm not so sure I've known, like I see him here now. Here is the deep sensitivity of, follow this, the man, Jesus. The man, Jesus, who is our saving God. The deep sensitivity of the man, Jesus, who is our saving God. John 11, When he saw her weeping and the Jews weeping, he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. Where Jesus sees Mary weeping and the Jews, the word for weeping in the Greek is kaiao, and it means loud crying, weeping, or wailing. Just, just mourning loudly. It's just great grief. And he looks at that and his reaction, and it says that he groaned being deeply troubled. In other words, Jesus saw the grief that the others were experiencing and he groaned in his spirit being deeply troubled. Now, one of the common, I would say the common evangelical interpretation is this, that he groaned in anger because the word can be translated and has been at different points in Greek usage translated as angered. But the classical interpretation is he groaned in anger at anger over sin. But he was angry at what sin had done. And I have used that as the explanation, I think, my whole Christian life. I now believe that to be part of it, but not the most important thing. I believe that that's all very possible, no doubt part of it, but that what John is wanting to show here is this. John is committed to showing the deity of Jesus Christ and his gospel. When he gets all done, he says, These things have been written that you might know that he is the Son of God, and knowing, believe on his name. But one other thing not so well known, is that John reveals the humanity of Jesus Christ more than any other gospel writer. As he's revealing the deity, he's also revealing the humanity in a way that no other gospel writer does, and he does it more in John chapter 11 than any other part of his writing. So here is Jesus about to do... The greatest miracle that will prove beyond any doubt that he is God. And at the same time, John is showing how totally human he is. As he's groaning in his spirit, literally what it is, the Greek text literally could be rendered. He troubled himself. He troubled himself. He groaned in his spirit. He was troubled and The phrase refers to an involuntary groan. That's the expression of a saddened heart. He was, in other words, emotionally gripped in the situation. But if you translate it literally, he troubled himself. What it comes to mean is this. He let himself care as a man. He let himself care as God, but he let himself care as a man. Let himself. You say, what do you mean, let himself? Well... He could have said, Everybody gather around! Now come here and listen to me. Stop all this crying. Stop all this wailing. Just follow me and stop it. Because you see, I'm about to raise him from the dead. Besides, if I never even came, he believed he's going to heaven anyway. Quit crying about all this. Where's your faith? Hey, come on. Come and see, I'll blow your mind. He could have done that, easily. It could have been quite novel and it would have been the greatest day of their life. But you see, he didn't do that. He groaned and he was troubled. Do you want to know why? Because he was torn by grief as a human being. As our totally human Savior who is totally God, he was completely torn by grief in contrast to the Greek gods of that day who were often described by the Greek word apatheia because the Greeks saw their gods as totally indifferent emotionally to their condition. Here is Christ and he's completely torn. Say, why did he bother to allow himself to care? Because, I'll tell you why now. Pay attention right here. Because he wanted to feel every pain you have ever felt. And because he wanted to know the grief as a human being that you have known at the graveside of your loved one. He wanted to know what it's like to have sorrow and emptiness as a human being. He allowed himself to feel that as a man. He even went on to feel the pain of death itself, which we haven't yet. But the point is, is that he allowed himself to suffer because he wanted to feel everything that we have felt. And what he is feeling there, he is feeling as a human being. In the face of his friend's death, Lazarus, he's troubled. But then we read Jesus wept in John eleven thirty four, 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Now every one of those faces is streaked with tears and grief. And he is now troubled and groaning, and he is in grief. Out of that grieving heart he says, Where have you laid him? This is the human Jesus. And then we read these monumental words. John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. It's only two words. It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. And yet it is of such importance it deserves to stand alone. You should underline it. You should mark it with red ink if it's not red already. You should make an exclamation point. You should write something in the margin. Spurgeon preached two sermons on these two words. And he said, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the utmost attentive consideration. Jesus wept. Think of that. If John is going to show us a human Jesus, he's showing us right now. Jesus wept. And the word that he chose, rather than the word for the others who are weeping, the loud wailing, it is a totally different word. And here I meet Jesus in a totally new way. John used a word, it's the Greek word, dakruo. And what it literally means is that Jesus said, Where have you laid him? And they said this way, and then it says Jesus wept. Literally, he silently burst into tears. This wasn't a professional cry like some of the professional mourners. This is a spontaneous expression of love that could not be held back. He burst into tears. These tears... Have been for all ages the testimony of the humanity of Jesus. You see, he cried over Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem, and he wept in the garden, but these are different tears. These are tears that are coursing down his cheeks and dropping down to his chest that is filled with sighs of sorrow. These are tears for his friend Lazarus. Don't ever forget, ever. Jesus had very few friends. And he was 100 percent human, totally human. When he hears the news, Lazarus is sick. Don't you think he wanted to go immediately? This is his friend, and he only has a few friends. Even among the 12, it's Peter, James and John, really, that he's closest with. Here's number four, maybe, if you can put it that way. this guy's not even ministry, so he, it's a different, kind of a lovely friendship. The one whom you love is sick. This is Jesus silently, where have you laid him? And he just bursts into tears and he's thinking, this is my friend. I had to wait. He got sick. And he got to that last moment gasping for breath. This is my best friend, Lazarus. He has agonized and I wanted to be here. Don't you think so? I had to wait in the plan of God. He just bursts into tears. He's thinking of his friend. Agonizing, calling Jesus on his lips as he's dying. And it's tearing him apart. See, Isaiah 53.3 said, He is despised and rejected of men. He had no friends because of who he was. Men are sinful, and they don't like being around really holy people. They get too close to you and they get away from you after a while. He had almost no friends. This was his friend. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And that's why Jesus is weeping, because he is so utterly human. And the Jews saw that. Look at verse 36. The Jews stopped. And they said, look at how he loved him. As he's just weeping for Lazarus. I don't know if we will ever in all of our lives read anything more touching and meaningful to us than this. See, because here, clearer than anywhere else, I see that Jesus is a human being exactly like I am a human being and that He knows grief as I know grief. And suddenly, there is a fresh wind that blows on Hebrews 4:15 that says for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need I will never face the loss of a loved one the same again as I see him here I can't see him the same in the garden now because when he he went to the garden of Gethsemane and he left the bulk of the disciples out at the gate and he took his three friends in with him for the hardest trial of his life, he said, listen, you're my friends, please watch with me and pray with me, please. And then he fell to the ground. He began to literally, the Greek paints a picture of him rolling in the dirt, agonizing. And he gets up and he comes back to check because it's so hard. It's the most amazing picture. Here is Jesus Christ, totally God and yet totally human. And He's reaching out to His friends. And it's God in this man. And yet it's this man reaching to His friends saying, Please share this burden with me of any time in my life. And they go to sleep. And He says, Couldn't you watch with me one hour? But you see, by then they have slept And he's drenched in his own blood that has come through his own pores as the agony got so great that the capillaries in his skin began to burst and shoot the blood through the pores of his skin. And he went away. They arrested him, drenched in his own blood to that trial. And there is the humanity. He's one of us. He feels what we feel. He's not far off at the end of the cosmos. He is one of us. And we... Will see him as one of us when we get to heaven, and somehow, in this wondrous love, he has chosen to stay human in heaven with us forever to make heaven all that much better for us. And he has chosen to be the resurrection and the life here and now, so that he can be with us every step of the way as a human, totally human totally God, total Savior. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you, Jesus, thank you for taking on our humanity and dwelling among us and becoming one of us. Thank you, Lord, that these aren't just words in the Bible that we read, but that you really have felt our grief. You know our emptiness. You know our pain. You know what it is to be in this human condition, and you sympathize with us at every single point. We love you, Lord. Totally and utterly. And we thank you, Lord, that you have told us to ask and seek and knock and never stop because you never want to stop blessing us, strengthening us, and revealing to us more of your great, grand glory and your beautiful plan for our lives. And so we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come and your perfect will be done, your will be done, in our lives. And we ask these things in your precious name, asking you, Lord, now to strengthen us to take the light of the gospel out to a lost and dying world and may it become the passion of our lives to share the passion that we have with you. And we ask it in your name. Amen.